What makes someone an Israelite? Yeah, so some bloodlines or descendants from, from the 12 sons of uh, Jacob or Israel. That's great. What else? Anything else? Any other defining traits to make you an Israelite? What if you're a Gentile and you want to convert to Judaism? How, how does that happen? What do you need to do? Circumcision, maybe, yeah. Do you, do you get a tribe? Do you just get to pick your tribe? Is it like a lottery? It's like, I'll take Judah because they're the biggest, or I'll take a Levite because then everybody just gives me 10% of their money. Um, like, what happens? How do you become an Israelite if you're an outsider? And in a patriarchal society, certainly women could marry into it, but say you're a man and you want to con- convert to, to Israel, to, to Yahweh and to worship Yahweh. What, what, what does that need to? And what covenant do you fall under then as a Gentile? Are you in the Mosaic world? Do you have to follow all the laws of Moses? Or do you get to be sort of in the Abraham camp? Like, all right, we'll, we'll, we'll believe in the promises. Do you get a plot of land? Because everybody would get a plot of land. That's part of being an Israelite, is that you have your land section of the, the Israel's plot. And so these are complicated, right? Complicated questions. And in Jesus' time, the debates were still raging of exactly how to consider those that might claim the name of Yahweh yet are complete outsiders to being a a bloodline of the 12 tribes or have married into the family. And so it's it's complicated. Yahweh worshiping Gentiles. And then this Messiah shows up in Jesus, this man who's claiming to be Messiah, and others are heralding him as a Messiah. And what are the expectations the Messiah would do? Yeah, there's a lot of expectation that they would overthrow, particularly Rome. Some are thinking overthrow the current priesthood that's corrupt and pretty terrible and in cahoots quite a bit with Rome. What else? What would the Messiah do? Well, the Pharisees hoping the Messiah does. Probably like purify Drive out all the, the, the class of sinners. Bring, bring restoration of the holiness of the country. Re, reinstate the sort of geopolitical theocracy of Israel that is obedient to the Lord. There's probably a lot of that as well. And the question still for many is, struggle with what, what this Jesus came to do. And he's spoken of the kingdom in, in many ways, and he, and he includes Gentiles in speaking about the kingdom. He has praised the faith of a Gentile. And, and Israel's job was to bless the Gentiles, certainly. And part of, I think, what Jesus came to do was to restore and to live out that Abraham promise that through Israel, God would bless the world. But how much are they really part of the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in up to this point? Are they part of the inheritance of the kingdom? Most wouldn't expect that. Most would feel like Jesus is restoring Israel, that that's his job as a Messiah to do. And in so doing, the Gentiles will be blessed, but what he's mainly there to do is to restore this kingdom. Are the Gentiles going to be brothers and sisters? I don't think that's where most people's heads would be at. And I think we'll wrestle with this today. And even the question of how much does Jesus know or understand his own mission? which will throw some of us for a tizzy, but that's okay. Matthew 15, let's go to that first story of the Canaanite woman. Um, Jesus went away from there and withdrew from the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. 
My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon, but he did not answer her a word. His disciples came and begged him, saying, send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was, not only, sent to the lost, I was only sent to the, sheep of the house, lost sheep of the house of Israel. She came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it's not right for the children's bread. Take the children's bread, throw it to the dogs. And she said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And Jesus answered, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So Jesus finally gets out of town. Um, Jesus has recently heard about the death of John the Baptist. Uh, we, we saw him seeking retreat, and the crowds followed him everywhere he sought retreat at. And now it perhaps feels like he's just hightailing out of town, finally having this moment away from the crowds, because guess what? Most of the Jewish crowds are not going to follow him into what is extremely Gentile territory. Uh, so this is where he is at. Uh, this is the map of him traveling way up the coast to Tyre and Sidon, which are, um, at this point, um, a pretty Syro-Phoenician. The Phoenicians have kind of taken over this part of the land, um, and the Greeks and Romans at this point as well. And so um, this is not Israel territory. Um, Sidon itself was never even territory within the map of Israel. And so um, he's, he's getting to very Gentile parts of the world, 60 miles away from the Sea of Galilee. And so, who does he meet there? Canaanite woman, right? Now, as a first century audience, you, you would probably pick up something that we don't tend to pick up on, which is the, the, the use of referring to people as Canaanites was not as common or as popular by that point in time. Um, even Mark will refer to this woman as a Syrophoenician woman, which would have been a more common identification, or actually a Palestinian, uh, so referring to sort of that area as, pal- as Palestinian people um, would have been uh, common amongst Rome as well. And so um, you have identifiers, but Matthew wants to call her a Canaanite woman. And I think that will matter in a moment. Because we've seen in Matthew a lot of storytelling that connects to Israel's history. Matthew has been connecting us to the story of Moses, to the Exodus. We've seen moments of the 40 days in the desert to match sort of the 40 years of Israel. We see the sort of going through waters. We see all these sort of moments, even the Sermon on the Mount kind of matching a little bit of Mount Sinai. We see these moments that I think Matthew is, is tracking for us. And I think the same is here, that we would end up in a place where we end up meeting some Canaanites. And what's Jesus' response to the Canaanites going to be? Would Jesus drive out the Canaanites in the story? Isn't that what's supposed to happen? Will he act like Joshua? His job is to establish Israel and their land again. Yet keep in mind, Jesus' own ancestry includes a Canaanite woman at this moment as well. And Jesus initially ignores her. He hears her request and we don't hear him say anything. And disciples sort of try to send her away. Like, ah, like he's trying to grieve or whatever he's trying to do. And, and, and he tries to send them away. And then Jesus makes this particular statement. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So once again, this involves, a, I would argue, a very complicated question that theologians wrestle with all the time. What does Jesus actually know about his mission? As a long-awaited king of Israel, what might Jesus be raised or have had sort of supernatural revelation uh, through the Holy Spirit, whatever it may be, want to know what his mission is. Certainly to glorify God and bless the nations, which has always been the mission of 
God's people. But, but what is his mission? Because up till now, the Gentiles in the story have been a part of the story. But I would argue that Jesus could be living out what it means to look like to bless the Gentiles and the foreigners of Israel, something that Israel has always been commanded to do. And as much as Jesus is fully God, and I fully affirm that, I stand by the ancient creeds, Jesus is fully God. He's also fully human. And there's some mystery to that peace. Philippians 2 will say that he emptied himself and set aside divine privileges. Luke 2 will say that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. Hebrews 5, John 15, John 8 will speak of Jesus learning things. So what do we, what do, we do with that? To be clear, I don't think there's a theologian that would say, like, Jesus was born and he's cooing as a baby, yet can fully know the, the full implications as a baby in the arms of Mary of everything that he's going to do over his lifetime. I don't know any theologian that would argue for that. And, and so Jesus grew and learned and sought things. And it's always a question of how much did he tap into sort of the omni-everything that he could, or how much Philippians 2, when it says he set aside his divinity, is he truly setting even those things aside, being fully human, with a fully human body and a fully human brain, with the capacity of a fully human brain, living in a fully human place, learning the Torah from fully human teachers that are around him, with fully human access to the Spirit, yet fully God. And so Matthew may be doing one of two things here. First, you know, I certainly want to say that this is a perfectly legitimate position. That his interaction with Jesus, he still has full awareness of his mission. He has known exactly what his mission is going to be in all clarity. And perhaps he's speaking about the expectations of who he is, that he's going to be this Messiah that's only for Israel, and that's what everybody expected. And perhaps it's a test for this woman, a test for his disciples, all those sort of things. But that's implicit. It's not explicit. And so the other option could include that perhaps Jesus, up to this point, does not necessarily see his job yet to be um, one that truly includes the rest of the world. That he sent his disciples saying, only go to the Israelites. He's already told them that. He said, don't go to the Gentile roads. Your job is to, to tell the Israelites about the kingdom of God. And even here, he's saying, this is, this is what I understand my mission to be. The lost sheep of Israel. My, my role is to be Messiah for Israel, to restore Israel to what it was supposed to be and to bless the world through that to embody Israel's mission to bless the Gentiles. And perhaps this interaction leads to a unique revelation. Because Jesus will say, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now, yes, this sounds absolutely harsh. I'm not going to candy coat that fact. But I think we also are 2,000 years removed, and there's things to consider in that. I want to be cautious of how negatively we read that. Because remember, we talked about this when Jesus told the parables and quoted Ezekiel. Um, animals were, were common reference points for Gentiles in, in, in general. Um, it, was a, it was a common way. Perhaps maybe think about it like we use sometimes the word Yankee uh, here in the South. And Yankee itself can be used very derogatorily, or it can be simply used to describe people from a certain place in a certain geolocation as well. And, and perhaps this will help. If we subbed another animal in there, so, it is not right to take children's bread and throw it to the llamas, right? 
Like, suddenly that feels significantly different than dogs. And so I want to be cautious that perhaps we use dogs in a very derogatory way that 2,000 years ago may not have carried the same derogatory tone. And, and so... And, and commentators are mixed on that, of how derogatory the tone should really be. And so I, I don't want us to be like, oh, I can't get over the fact that Jesus was so harsh there, because it is perhaps we read some harshness into Jesus' tone that's not actually there. So what is Jesus getting at here? Because let's see the woman's response. She says, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, we've encountered a story before, if you walk through your Old Testament, it takes place in Sidon. And, and what here, and in and, and that story, there appears to be a single mother who's caring for her child. And there's a conversation about bread and meager provisions. So crumbs is like a, a small morsel of something. Who would that be? Who knows? They're Old Testament prophets. We, we have Elijah, who encounters the widow of Sidon, this Phoenician woman from Sinan once again, who's caring for her son who needs healing. And the entire time, Elijah stays with the woman and God miraculously provides biscuits for the household. The biscuit he provides are simply starvation ration biscuits. There's no sense of total abundance. Not only that, but this period of Judaism, Elijah was very much looked at as the first rabbi. The first, uh, sometimes the phrase would be master. So in some ways, the story in Elijah's story literally ends up eating the crumbs from the master's table. And once again, Matthew utilizes a total outsider in the story, right? It's a Gentile, it's a woman, for a tremendously significant moment. She even seems to know her prophets. She seems to recognize Jesus as the son of David in some ways. And perhaps... This is not a hardline theological point, but perhaps, perhaps something clicks for Jesus about his mission. And he, he responds to her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Let's recap who Jesus has actually said what tremendous faith up to this point, right? A Roman centurion, the friends of a man experiencing paralysis who tried to lower him through the ceiling, a woman who had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years, and two blind men. That's the great faith that Jesus has found so far in Israel. These are the people of tremendous faith in the story, the people everyone expected, right? When you think of the, the, the leader of the Sadducees or the Pharisee that is well-studied That's who most people would go, they are the people of tremendous faith. Yet Jesus shows up. And who did he herald? But these individuals, Jesus turning the world upside down. But is the Jewish God, Yahweh himself, is he he interested simply in blessing the Gentiles? Or is he here for the Gentiles? That the lost sheep are not just the, sh- the sheep of Israel, but the world itself. And his mission is not just to restore the good and right, peaceable kingdom of Israel as a blessing to the world, but for the bringing of the kingdom of God that's going to be completely different than everyone expected. And if, 
I don't think we grasp how sort of revolutionarily, revolutionary change that that might have been. Because let's go, Jesus will then move to the feeding of the 4,000. So Jesus goes back along the Sea of Galilee, as it says. Mark, uh, as the gospel writer, will clue us in exactly where this is, which is in the Decapolis, which is a highly pagan Gentile region on the northeast side of Galilee. Matthew will actually clue us into that fact too when he says they sail back across to Magdala. So uh, that would assume that they're actually on the other side of the lake. So this takes place on the other side, not in the religious Jewish towns, but in a Gentile part of the world. Um, so we'll skip ahead uh, to, the, to the map um, just to give you a sense of what Jesus did. So he would have had to gone down to the other side of the lake. This would have been the most common route to have taken. So he goes to the very far side of the lake for healing for three days, and then he gets the story of feeding 4,000. Now, let's recap. If you were here three weeks ago, two weeks ago, when I covered some of the numbers in, in Israel and how the numbers work. We good with that? Uh, so I'll just recap. We won't do like trivia for y'all. So uh, here's, here's the list uh, that's helpful. Uh, one in Jewish thought, remember, it's less quanti- quantitative and a little more qualitative. One carries with it uh, the concept of God. Two, uh, sort of the tablets, the law of Moses was probably the most common usage of it. Uh, three, uh, community. Uh, so uh, they, weren't, they weren't Trinitarian in Israel at this point. Uh, so uh, both the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, um, as well as the Levites and the Israelites and the priests, uh, there were a lot of uses of three to represent community. Uh, four, which is really the four corners of the map, uh, they would have looked at it that way. Sort of, uh, you'll see this in Ezekiel a ton, uh, but towards the Gentiles. Five uh, was almost always around the Torah, the books of Moses. Uh, even in Greek, we call it the Pentateuch. It's like the five books. Uh, six, uh, sort of the number of sinful man. So 666 certainly is going to carry with it a lot of negative connotations. Uh, but um, it's sort of this incompleteness. And then seven is complete. Uh, so uh, the total of something, either of God's goodness, uh, sort of the complete good side of things, or in certain contexts, it actually refers, there were seven nations in the Canaanite people, um, and it often carries with it a sort of a negative uh, view. So when you get to the book of Revelations and things are three and a half, it's like not yet complete um, symbolism. Uh, Ten, uh, which is sort of a complete community, you'll see this multiple times as well, Um, and then twelve, sort of the tribes of Israel, God's elect people, and then thousand often symbolizes sort of a large multitude of things, not always specifically a thousand. Cool. So... Jesus, the first time around, feeds the 5,000. And, and you can go back and listen to that sermon. Just don't do it when you're driving. You'll probably fall asleep. But um, Jesus covers as a second. And by the way, if you ever fall asleep here, cool. I, I know my preaching could put you to sleep. <laughs> Sunday is a day of rest. And if, all, and if all you get out of coming and worshiping is rest, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I am, I'm for that. You're all right. Um, so the first time around, sort of the, the, the take home, I would argue, is Jesus as sort of the second Moses. That sort of when you let me interpret the law and completely trust me with it, there's more than enough to go around. And he's in a primarily Jewish place when he makes that statement. And now the setting is 4,000, not 5,000. So we don't have the Jewish community of 5,000. We have a Gentile pagan community, which is where Jesus is at. We get numbers like seven, which we just heard about a Canaanite woman a second ago. So perhaps our imagination should be in much more that realm of things. 
And so, no longer fives, twos, and twelves, we get fours and sevens. And perhaps, having fed the Jewish crowd and communicated that important feeding, that something about this experience in Sidon, perhaps, perhaps, caused Jesus to hightail it to the Gentile part of town. And then Matthew wants to package all these stories together with this whole yeast of the Pharisee thing, too, which is smack dab thrown throughout it. And he, and he drives out demons, he's healing people, and perhaps the lesson shouldn't be, well, we, Jesus can do more than one miracle. He can feed a thousand, thousands of people again, which feels like a, a totally unnecessary lesson that all the other gospel writers don't seem to care about other than Matthew. Or perhaps... This is solely about Jesus' mission and what Jesus came to do. That he's not just the king of the Jews, which remember, Matthew's audience is primarily Jewish. He's not just the Messiah of Israel, but what Jesus came to do is truly for the whole world. And like I said, this is a revolutionary statement because gods in the ancient world were confined to a people or a place, confined to a nation or a mountain. And, And for... Jesus to come and to say, no, that's not what Yahweh's true interest is. He's not just about this people. He is about the world. Would have blown people's minds. (laughs) And it would cause, I would argue, part of, I mean, also the movement of of the Spirit, but for God's people to be a transcultural people that aren't confined to a certain place or a certain, certain pattern in a lot of ways. That you could find the church now in China. You could find the church in North Africa. You could find the church here in America, South America. And it's not culturally bound in so many ways. But that there's people worshiping, not just on this specific mountain. The whole conversation Jesus has in John 4, it's not about this specific mountain in this specific place, but a global movement. And if you're still not bought in, let me finish with what he finishes with. Because he has these conversations with the Pharisees and then around sort of numbers. And the Pharisees, Sadducees come, they're looking for Jesus to to show them a sign of something. And Jesus responds saying, well, all all I'm going to give you is a sign of Jonah. Now, we we cover Jesus' talk about the sign of Jonah back in Matthew 12. And yes, there's a note about three days in the tomb. But what were the rest of Jesus' teaching about the sign of Jonah about? Do y'all remember? He starts talking about the queen of the south and the people of Nineveh, right? And he says, here's the sign of Jonah. Yes, and, and the question is, did Matthew add a parenthesis there or not? But it moves into a teaching saying, it's about the Ninevites who repented. It's about the queen who came and sought wisdom from Solomon. That's the sign of Jonah. And I think Jesus is simply saying here, saying, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. The Gentiles are coming and believing. There's a movement of the Spirit. That's your sign, Pharisees. And then he warns the disciples. He's like, don't follow what they're teaching you. It's yeast. And then the disciples in a classic way are like, are you talking about bread? Should we have brought bread? It's, it's such a funny response. And Jesus is like, of course I'm not talking about bread. 
Let's talk about the numbers, you guys. Let's, let's highlight the numbers that happen in the story. That's what he does. See, I wasn't making it up. Jesus does a little bit of this too. He says, how much were in the first feeding? You know, five. Five, how many baskets did you have left? Twelve. What about the second one? You have four and seven. You had seven baskets left over. Do you guys get it? And, and so I think Jesus is reminding his disciples, you, you know why you beware the yeast of the Pharisees? Because they teach you to avoid all those people. They teach you to avoid the outsiders, the unclean, that God's mission is only for the insiders and not to that crowd. Even to mention the name, the Decapolis, was to make you unclean in the Pharisaic world. They would never be caught dead in a place like that. And Jesus says, be careful of that teaching because you'll miss out on what God is actually doing to bring peace, to bring his presence and his kingdom to the world. And, and so, for the church, may we continue to beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. A year and a half ago, we, we did a whole series where we covered a number of controversial subjects and talked about just a little bit of deconstruction and disillusionment and all those sort of topics. And, and sort of the last piece of that was about how to be a church where, where the insiders and outsiders and these boundaries are, are not the thing we focus on. How to be a church where red state and blue state people can come to the table together. How to, how to be a church where those experiencing same-sex attraction and those that think same-sex attracted people are going to hell can come to the table and worship how to be a church for that. And, and I'm not sure, I'm sure none of the disciples were expecting to find faith in a Canaanite woman that day. And even as an observer, I'm not sure what all she truly understands about Jesus. Same with the, the demon-possessed man that uh, was, was in the Decapolis that Jesus set free. But she would have been written off. And so much of the yeast of the Pharisees would have certainly written her off. Whether, and, and others, whether unclean, whether foreign, whether of questionable reputation. All people that wouldn't even have access to a synagogue or a temple. And that's what Jesus moves towards. Lines were drawn and they were excluded. But if Matthew is teaching us anything, Matthew, the tax collector, is teaching us anything over and over and over again. It's about opening wide those who may eat at the master's table. Because there's a parallel question I want to propose for us. When is someone a Christian? For real. When is someone a Christian? What's the starting point? Sure, maybe it's a, it's a sinner's prayer. Maybe, maybe that's the starting point when, when they pray out loud or do a, a certain prayer. Maybe that's it. Should, should that be it? When, when they pray the prayer and express certain worship? And it's fascinating. It's fascinating particularly to have this conversation with those who have worked on the mission fields. Like, what if that saved person from another country refers to Jesus as God or the Son of God 
but uses a word for God that's significantly different than maybe the English or the Greek or the Hebrew terms. Are they a Christian then? Well, the person offers incense to a picture of Jesus that's still on a shelf, uh, on a shelf in their home, but they haven't taken all the other gods down yet. Are they, are they a Christian yet? What if they start attending church but still participate in some religiously cultural celebrations? What about then? It's complicated. To simply pinpoint, because guess what? I know a lot of people that pray the prayer. I don't know if I'd call Christian. So when should we consider someone? It's messy. It's, it's maybe observable over time, but it's messy to go here is where it looks like. C.S. Lewis says the situation in the actual world is much more complicated than that. The world does not consist of 100% Christian and 100% non-Christian. There are people, a great many of them, who are slowly ceasing to be Christian, but who still call themselves by the name. Some of them are clergymen. I love that C.S. Lewis throws that in there. There are other people who are slowly becoming Christian, though they do not yet call themselves so. There are people who do not accept the full Christian doctrine about Christ, but who are so strongly attracted to him that they are his in a much deeper sense than they themselves understand. And it means that although there's, there's some ways to draw lines and go, here's inside and here's outside, that, that one of the things I argued for a year and a half ago is that we got to be really care, careful how we focus on those lines or not. Because hear me, boundaries are okay. Like, and, and, and the theory behind a lot of this is called center set churches. It comes from uh, a couple different books that build upon each other. And um, the, the best analogy to think about it um, is probably around like the game of soccer. And, and there's a way to, to form soccer that is very bounded. It has a very clear set of boundaries and rules and expectations. Um, so um, a league, like, a, like, a, like a, a true, like my kid playing club soccer. There's tryouts. You've got to be a certain level of proficiency to participate in the league. Everybody has the same jerseys. Everybody has the same schedules. There's high certain expectations of exactly what to what to expect and what not to expect. And those that are learning the sport, sorry, you're not really welcome. Those who are curious about it, there's not really a place for you. And the difficulty is that sometimes we build churches that are like that. And then there's sort of fuzzy soccer. This is like what happens at summer camps when like three or four sports all happen on the field together. And sometimes you know who's playing and sometimes you don't. And sometimes a frisbee ends up as part of the game, and soccer sometimes turns into something else. And that's fuzzy. And it's not helpful uh, to build a church that way, too. You're so anti the rules that you just let anything go. And we don't even know if we're playing soccer anymore. And that's a problem, too. And then there's a way to sort of center around soccer. And perhaps this is more like the pickup game, where we say, hey, every Sunday morning, we're going to go play soccer. And you are always welcome to come. And you who don't really know how to play that well, and you who have been playing for years and might get frustrated from those that are new, but hey, that's part of the game. Welcome. And if you want to play football, sorry, we're going to be playing soccer. You can go play football at the mosque down the street. We're playing soccer here. 
But this is what we're doing. And, and to center around that. And for us, I think over the last year and a half, to really define the center well, to go, Jesus is the center of this all. And we want to make sure we understand exactly what we mean when we say Jesus. And hear me, founded churches will, will also be like, Jesus is the center. But they spend a lot of time focusing on those edges. And for us, we want to focus on exactly what is in the middle. Because Jesus speaks in ways that sort of push the very bounded folks, like the Pharisees. Like, you read the Gospel of Luke, it is constantly that. And we're finding that a lot in Matthew, too. It's like, hey, if you think that the lines that you drew are correct, you've missed it. And if you're focused on the lines, you've really missed it. And the ones that the Messiah should be for and the ones the Messiah should be against are completely reversed in so many minds. The zealots want the Messiah to be a military Messiah for Rome and for him to be for the violence. The Pharisees want Messiah to be against all those folks who don't follow the obedience codes and only for those who are faithful and practice outward piety. The Herodians want their Messiah to endorse cultural assimilation. That's not a big deal to just welcome anything in and against those uber-religious folks down up in the north. And perhaps you've decided who is already in and who is already out. A gay Christian? No way. A Trump-supporting Christian nationalist? There's no chance, right? That woman who dabbles in crystals while also claiming faith in Jesus? No way, right? A person who worships on Sunday morning and takes the edge off in Sunday evening with a little bit of weed? No place here, right? And we've drawn lines, And before you misunderstand me, every one of these people and every one of us have ways in our lives that are not in line with the Jesus proclaim, and we are constantly being sanctified in the process. But the question at the end of the day is less about the rules and the boundaries and more about the orientation. Are we oriented towards Jesus? And so many of us have had struggles with strongly bounded churches. To be at this church, you have to be baptized in a very specific way. Or to be at this church, you have to pray in tongues and, or some, have some charismatic sort of experience. To be at this church, you have to agree with Calvin's five points. Those are the rules. Right? Everyone else is wrong. We have it right. And hear me, boundaries are not bad. As I said, we need to agree that we're playing soccer. But it's how they're focused and the way that they're wielded and utilized to weaponize against other people. It brings superiority and judgment and exclusion. At least we're not like those people down the street, right? At least we're not like that church. We don't have those flags in front of our building. We're better. At least we're not like that church. It's chaos when you're there, right? We're better. We've gotta be cautious. We want to focus less on the boundaries and more on the center. From, from Center Center Church, it says this, the centered paradigm facilitates sincere and deep relationship because unity does not come from uniformity, but from a common orientation towards the center. There is space to struggle and fail because everyone recognizes that they are in process moving closer to the center. Since centered unity does not come from uniformity, there is also space for differences not possible in a bounded church. Commenting on Paul's response to a conflict over appropriate diet choices in Romans 14, Rachel Tolick observes, unity is found not in agreement of all particulars, but in the direction of our actions and convictions. 
To whom do we eat or not eat? To whom do we celebrate or not celebrate? More crucially, to whom do we live or die? To whom do we belong? A bounded church focuses on defining and maintaining the boundary, whereas a center church focuses on defining the center and maintaining clarity about the church's center, which is, first and foremost, Jesus Christ. Not only in terms of our beliefs about Jesus, but more importantly, who Jesus is, how Jesus reveals God, and how the spirit of Jesus remains alive and present today. The center is further defined by the Bible, the gospel, models of discipleship, theological traditions that have shaped the community. And what a unique kind of family that we can be. One that focuses on the center. And hear me, that is a messy and hard way to do church. You know what's really easy? Setting boundaries. Here are the boundaries. You're going to To walk with people and, and, and figure out orientation of how much they are directed towards Jesus or not. To have patience with the Holy Spirit to actually work in people's lives over time rather than have them present sometimes a more put-together version of themselves. Hear me. There's more doubts and struggles and all of it and mess than you know. There are more people here that probably struggle with addiction than we know about right now as leadership. There are more people here that doubt their own faith than we know about in leadership. There are more people here that have just terrible stories of abuse. There are those who have been abusers. There's all of it. And we are moving, hopefully, towards Jesus together. I'll tell a story real quick. I know I'm over. When I first became a believer, which is college, um, there was a very tiny university at the campus I was at. Um, It was probably like I visited, and there were like eight of us. And they did a retreat for the eight of us. And, and when we were there, they did this like Bible memorization like obstacle course of some sort. And, and I'd been a Christian for like a month. And so I just failed miserably while everybody else like won and got to sell. Like, and it was like so hard and so isolating in that moment. To feel like, oh, like, there's, there's not room for me to be new. <laughs> and not room for me to be, like, a baby step on the journey so far. And I want to make sure no one feels that way here. And what Jesus also made clear, just to close here, that you and me, unless you have a Jewish heritage, we are all Gentiles in this room. That we are invited to eat at the master's table. That we would be extended table fellowship weekly. That's why we love doing this here weekly. Extended table fellowship with Jesus. With our new family of brothers and sisters. And guess what? Some of us are weird. Some of us are different. Some of us look a lot more like our father than other people in the room. But we're invited blood-bought and blood-bound because of what Jesus did on the cross. That God made the move towards you and me to blood-buy a new family. As messy as families can be. He's recreating the world through these weird families that gather on Sundays and drawing himself 
from all walks of life through the Spirit and continuing to make new creations. And often it would surprise us to see what the Spirit's going to do. And so my hope is to be a church that just lets the Spirit do the work. And we keep orienting each other towards Jesus. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with calling people to repentance. That's exactly what Jesus did. But we've got to be careful about how much we focus on the boundaries, lest we become the yeast of the Pharisees.